You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you would open up to um, Mark uh, chapter 2, uh, Mark chapter 2, um, we're just going to continue on uh, just in our sermon series that we got going um, at the beginning of the year called uh, The Suffering Servant. And so uh, we are usually going through straight left to right, whole books of the Bible, and we'll decided to get into a gospel. And, you know, the main point of, of gospels are always to um, identify the person, the work of Jesus, to put before the reader, hey, like, this is who Jesus is. And he's just not an idea. He's not just like a philosophy. He's like a man that came into this earth, that was fully God, that was fully man. And, um, and he was the promised Messiah. He wasn't just like accidentally showed up one day. He was promised from thousands and thousands of years of prophecy. And, um, and so uh, the gospels are, are an introduction to, to a person, to respond. And that's why there's so many different reactions of different responses, because all of us, if we were to meet a person, would have all different types of opinions. And that's why we have so many different authors, is because each of the authors offers up a, a different eyewitness, a different perspective. And the way that Mark tends to write is through the theme of the suffering servant, whether or not Jesus was waking up to deliver demons that day, or to teach that day, or to heal that day, or to die that day, or to be resurrected, or to sit at the right hand of the Father. Today, Jesus didn't just act like a servant. He is a servant. Serving was not just an action that he did in order to prove that he was God or to be a nice guy so he could earn people. He lived as a servant. Every moment he spent came from that one baptismal moment, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And he responded with, basically with his life, this is my father who I will serve. And every person he was in front of, it doesn't matter if they were a critic, a friend, and anywhere ambivalent, anywhere in between, he came to serve and not to be served. Not to take life, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Because the servant is always doing what the master's business is telling him to do. And so that's the identity to, to watch, like, what Jesus does, but why he does it. So I went super long last sermon, last Sunday. I barely had 30 minutes to talk, get my point across, and talk for 50 minutes in the second service. I don't know which one you went to, but you had different experiences, okay? And so, uh, but it was a big topic because the thing that Jesus is doing in chapter uh, 2 and, and into 3, and really a lot of the other parts of, of, of the book of Mark, is Jesus does physical healings. And I was asking us that question in both services, like, why did Jesus decide not to do a bus ministry? Why did Jesus decide not to do Michael Scott give kids tuition money and scholarships and actually get, you know, why didn't he teach kids how to read? Why didn't he go down if he was just, you know, quitting guilty sinners to go down to important court cases and fight for the injustice within court? He could have done any of these things. It wouldn't have been a waste of time. But Jesus decides to wake up and he heals as a servant. Why didn't he touch people and heal their physical bodies? And that's what I was asking you was, you know, was it... Was it a magic show to get attention? Was it, was, it, was it simply something to do because only God could do this? Certainly that's a good reason. You know, that's an effect of, of healing somebody. Man, must be God. It's miraculous. It's loving. It's touching. It, it opens the doorways to the gospel. And, and, and what, we, what we were thinking about there before we rushed on into the conclusion of just, just seeing cool things that God does is to consider that potentially, the mere, potentially, I think I need to shave my face a little bit more. I feel like my beard is just having a rough time. Uh, um, I'm going to switch mics. That's what I'm going to do. Where's the uh, handheld mic? One, two, there. Whew, we're back. Britney Spears, Mike. Coming in strong. By the way, I want to let you know it's a staff picture day today, which is why I decided to iron my shirt. At some point, when your profile picture is too old, you're lying, okay? Am I right? People in the dating apps or in life, if I put a picture up of myself and it's of me when I'm 26, it's no different than if McDonald's says it's 99 cents for a burger and they sell it to you for $2. It's dishonesty. Okay, so anyways, it comes to a point when we all need to take our pictures again. Jesus didn't heal just because it got attention, because it proved the legitimacy of him being God. He doesn't need to prove anything to himself, right? The reason why he's healing is because the work itself that he's doing is a healing. Healing is not the method, it's the mission. Jesus says, I didn't come to serve, but to be served and to bring salvation. And when Jesus says salvation, it is not subtracted to or added to healing. Salvation is a healing. Salvation is a legal category, which means that... um, we are sinners in front of a holy God and need atonement and need acquittal is an, is an accurate way to talk about what Jesus came to do for me, you and me. 
and, and healing is not less or added to it, but salvation includes, next to uh, the atonement for sin and the acquittal of guilty sinners, includes healing. Healing is not just deliverance, or excuse me, salvation is not just deliverance, it's healing. So the metaphor I brought up last time was the idea of a burning house. Jesus comes to save us from a burning house, to save us from the penalty of sin and deliver us from the evil around us. Jesus, salvation comes to save us from the prison of sin. But Jesus doesn't come to put out the fire in the house. Jesus comes to rebuild the house. He doesn't just come to clear the fire out and say, oh, good luck rebuilding your life. Just to, just to douse the, the, the house from fire with water and, and clear out the fire does not fully embody. Actually, Jesus doesn't just come to evacuate evil from around us, but to heal us from the evil inside of us. Not just to set us free from the prison of sin, but to heal us from the poison of sin. Which is why that guy that got delivered of demons, it said in Mark chapter 5, was not just sitting there by himself with no more demons inside of him, which would have been a, a wonderful gift in and of itself. But salvation was not just the evacuation of demons, but the filling of the Spirit. That he was calm, peaceful, dressed in his right mind. To be saved, a salvation, a sozo, a Greek word sozo, that Jesus came to save, heal, and deliver. A sozo, a full sozo, is not just evacuation out of hell. It is to be saved and to be healed and to be delivered. So salvation, salvation is not just a metaphor of healing. Salvation in and of itself is a healing. It is being healed of our pride, being healed of our shame, being healed of our self-loathing and prejudice and judgmentalist. It's not just to be freed from the captivity of the principalities and the dark things of this world. It's to be healed from the inside out or it's nothing. Salvation is itself a healing. And so I didn't finish up... Um, from, from last Sunday to talk about the three different patients, if you remember. There's three different patients. There is a paralytic, there is a leper, and there is a tax collector. And although one of those did not have any physical ailments at the beginning of the day, all three of them were sick patients, spiritually and physically. And so if you're in the first service, I got to talk about just the leper. And if you're in the second service, I talked for 50 minutes and talked about also the paralytic. <laughs> I appreciate the love there because uh, it, was, it was a long one. And today we're going to see if I can get it done quicker than that. But we're going to talk about the last sick patient, which is the tax collector. And today, uh, I'm going to call my, my message um, the, doc, the doctor's call, not just the doctor's orders. So I got a phone call one time um, from a Korean doctor in town who was working as a specialist um, on my kidneys. I had gotten a diagnosis a couple of weeks earlier uh, because of the strep throat that I had was causing um, just um, fatigue and uh, and and problems like in my overall health that seemed like it was longer than strep throat. And so I went to the doctor and what he basically said is that my body reacted to the strep throat by attacking my kidneys. It was a kind of nephritis where it's like your body can kind of attack itself. And um, in fighting off the strep throat, it also fights off your own body. And so the prognosis could have been that um, I would have to not only um, get a kidney transplant at some point in my life, maybe 10 years down the road, but for the rest of my life, I might have to be on dialysis, that I was going to have to be, you know, by my bed, you know, basically having this machine clean up my, my blood because my kidneys wouldn't do it, you know, for me. And so what is it like to get a doctor's call to bring the good news that switches out the bad news? When you get the phone call, and it's this Korean doctor, you know the Korean doctor, it's like you love him, but man, you could be a little kinder with the way that you talk. He's just like, Oliver, you know, and just runs through this stat sheet. Like, I'm like, is this good news or bad news? I can't really tell what you're saying to me right now. But all I took away from it was, was the good news part of it, that my levels were normal. And that I wasn't gonna have to be on dialysis for the next 10 years. And I wasn't gonna have to have a kidney transplant. I mean, I believe from all the point of sitting in the middle of a staff chair where we have prayer for me with laying on of hands of coming to Monday night prayer every single Monday for the next couple of weeks to watching just Bethel worship uh, YouTubes because all the ways we could get through the night and worrisome and troublesome moments, me and Kyra together as we had our three little kids praying for this thing. I believe um, that I didn't just get fixed. I believe Jesus healed me. I believe I got healed. And, um, and, so, um, and so it took me about 30 minutes. I didn't even want to tell anybody because I just didn't want it public. I just wanted to process it, you know, on my own with the Lord and, and have a personal reflection and, and experience with it. And it was weeping and it was joy and, and gratitude and grace and a new way to really look at things in a way that I would never unsee them again kind of a thing. And, um, and also, man, I started eating a lot more. Uh, because basically the kidney thing meant that you couldn't have too much protein in your blood, so you couldn't eat a lot of protein, you know, or, or, or a lot of dairy, even like things like cheese and things like all this. So for the last couple of weeks, basically what was happening to me is like 
I was setting little revenge vendettas of if I ever get out of this, I'm going to murder that chocolate chip cupcake that I didn't get to eat. You know what I'm talking about? When you're on that diet, you're taking names. When I get through this diet, when I get through this fast, that quesadilla is in trouble, right? Like for now, you're going to get away with it. But put, come, come in front of my face one more time and see what happens, right? And so I was going off taking vendellas, hitting hit lists of all the things I couldn't eat. You know, I'd lost like 10 pounds, you know. Um, I, I used to be down at the Genghis Grill. Figured out the only way I can get any protein is like eating squid or shrimp or whatever at the Genghis Grill. It's like, no more Genghis Grill. I'm going straight to Chipotle. I'm getting pork or whatever, Car- you know, carnitas, right? Coffee. Had to give up half and half. Ugh. Have you ever, it's coffee drinkers in the room, you had to switch over to tea. I spent a lot of money on my tea, and it wasn't worth it. I'll tell you that because it's not the same thing, right? And so as you can imagine, right, like, like um, at the minute that I heard my prognosis that my struggle with the kidney disease was over, all of the, uh, the motivation for all of my health choices and my diet and my abstinence went out the window, right? And the minute I found out my healing, my health lost its motivation. And so here's, the, here's the, the, the illustration I think that it makes me think of when I consider, you know, my journey into kidney health and all that kind of thing and healing and diet is that we've all had this kind of experience of recognizing that there is a distinct and important difference between healing and health. There is a big difference between what it takes to go from one weight to another weight and then keeping that weight at that weight. There's a big difference between getting out of debt and investing money. There's a big difference between living from dish to dish and fire to fire and walking in ongoing health and healing. There's a difference between health and healing. So here's a picture of, of a chart up here. I don't know um, if we're able to get it there, Tucker. Uh, oh, there it is. See, you guys got the good chart. That's where we're making it in second service. Um, but the chart, if you could think about it from, let's say, a physical or financial from a spiritual level, each of the categories are independent, but they're also integrated. There could be, um, there could be for example, a turning point in your life where you just see a picture of yourself on the Instagram. You're like, that is it. No more cupcakes. No more going to Chipotle or whatever. And you get to that point, right? And you, and, you, and you lose the weight and you get to the gym and you get to the diet. But once you get to that gym and that diet, the fire behind you is no longer there. And so the motivation it took you to get healed was not the motivation that can get you healthy. I heard a great uh, podcast one time about going to the gym. If you don't look forward to going to the gym, love being in the gym, and then love the feeling it takes. Have you guys ever been in this situation? Maybe you're like, this has never happened to me, right? Looking forward to the gym, loving being in the gym, and looking back and loving what you did in the gym, if that's not the feeling you have about the workout in that gym, it's probably not gonna last. Because diet is different than lifestyle. And any diet, right, could get you to the goal that you want, but lifestyle is the one that's gonna keep you there. For example, there's a difference between realizing I make less money than I spend. (laughs) That is a powerful motivation. And that motivation, hopefully, will get you to Dave Ramsey or somewhere else and get you to recognize, I need a budget. Getting to that budget, earning more or spending less, and setting a balanced budget is a great goal. How do you guys know that the goal of equilibrium in your budget is not the same thing as really, I think, spending money has a lot to do with identity, of knowing what you're doing and knowing how to use money as a tool to get you there. Those are two separate things. The difference between financial healing and financial health are two separate things. Some people could be really good at health and not good at healing or vice versa. And similarly, spiritual health, I think we could look through the same diagnostic. That there is a difference between healing and health. That the spiritual practice of prayer and scripture and community are all you know, wonderful things. But if there is a pain somewhere else deep down in my heart, throwing more Bible at it and walking out healthy rhythms is not going to substitute for my healing. Vice versa, if I understand that there is a pain in my life or a struggle or something that I don't like, and I rush to the altar in church, and I plead, you know, put my, throw my, my spiritual heart and my soul before the Father and receive his forgiveness and his warm embrace, that's not the same thing of knowing how to guard your mouth and your tongue in wise ways, that the healing does not necessarily precipitate health. And so these categories can be same, they can be independent, they can be integral, but all of that to say, this is the main point that I think we could reflect and see from a chart like this, is if you're an athlete, or you're Lee Iacocca, or you're trying to bring kingdom to Greenville, right, all of these can be true, is you can't be healthy if you're not healed. Like at some level, if I, if I am a, 
health expert or I'm an athlete or an Olympian, but I have a broken ankle, it doesn't matter what kind of discipline or rigor I have, if I'm injured, I can't be healthy at the same time. You can't be healed if you can't be healthy if you're not healed. Can't invest money if you're if you're broke, right? You can't be healthy if you're not healed, and you can't be healed if you don't know if you're hurt. And so, so this is this is the picture, right? So Jesus goes out, he's a suffering servant, he goes out to heal. He comes out to heal not just the spirit, the body, the mind, the soul. He heals all of it. That is the sozo to bring heaven to earth. He's not just trying to see, you know, greedy people stop stealing. He's trying to see greedy people become generous. He's trying to see not just people get out of hurtful situations, but to walk fully in the power of the Spirit in health. That is his whole agenda. That is the sozo. That is the salvation. And so we see the three healings, and two of them are physical, and one of them is spiritual, but they're all the same story. And so if you're just reading on a cursory level, you just think, oh, sick person healed, sick person healed. Change the subject, a sinful person gets forgiven. But if you back out and zoom out from the cursory thing, it's not that he changes something. It's not just sick person, sick person, sinner. It's sinner, 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 and sick, 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 meeting Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so here's how you know that. This is why he does, because he gathers us all around Levi's house, and that's where we'll get to at the very end of this passage. And he gives us a little sermon. He ties it together. This isn't three stories. This is one story. Different symptoms, same sickness. Different conditions, same Savior. Same salvation. So verse 17, remember this is the verse. He says that this is, if we thought he changed the subject, he didn't change it. He's still talking about the same thing. Whether it's the paralytic, the leper, or Matthew, he's still talking about the same sermon. On hearing this, Jesus says to them, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. They're complaining about Matthew and how come there's all these sinners and ugly people that are coming around Jesus and how can he gather these people around the table? He's like, you know, you weren't complaining about this healing. You're complaining about this tax collector, but actually they're not two separate cases. They're the same patient to me. Jesus says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. Like Matthew's not leprous and he's not stuck to a mat being paralyzed for 80 years or for 40 years or whatever, but he's still sick. And so are you, he says. This is basically what he's inferring. It's not the healthy that need a sick, need sick. I have come to call, I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners. Jesus isn't doing a third patient with a third story. He's doing a third patient with the same story as the first ones, just as much as the leper, the paralytic, and Matthew are all getting saved. So it is that the leper and the paralytic and Matthew are all being healed. It's not saved, you know, saved and then, and then healed, or healed, healed, and saved. It's all of them are being healed and saved at once through one salvation. There is only one sozo. He's not doing five different things for five different treatments for five different people. He's doing one salvation through one atonement, through one offering. One salvation. Sozo means to be saved, healed, and delivered, or it means nothing. It's all of those things. So what does that mean for us? In this room, there are many stories. Some of us in this church are single moms, and they're wondering how they're going to pay the bills. And some of us are dealing with a low-grade anxiety constantly, trying to be happy when they know they're not. And some of us are stuck on theological problems. And some of us have, have friends and, 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 and people around us with, with, with problems that we are frustrated with that, uh, that other people can get healed and they can't get healed. We're all in these different boats with different symptoms, but it's all coming from the same source. It's all coming from the same sickness. And it's all, it's all telling one story of salvation. That we are saved and healed and, and delivered through Jesus. And so these are the two words of all the words we're going to look at in the passage today that we're going to lock in on. Because this is where not just Matthew, but the tax collectors and the lepers and the paralytics and sinners like us, this is where we get saved. These are the two words that have the power, right, for salvation and no other place. This is what he says, the two words. Jesus says to Matthew and to really all those other sick people and you and me, follow me. This is the, this is the invitation not the, not, the, not the prayer, the Hail Mary that we throw up. Not the, um, the, the list of do's and don'ts, the right and wrongs, the things that we clean ourselves up. There is no other place. There's no other place for salvation, which is the same thing as healing. There's no other place for healing other than the response, the, the, the power of the Spirit to come into a person, convict them of sin, repent them, and believe in Jesus' salvation to follow him. This is where our salvation lives, and it lives in no other place. This is where our healing lives. And this is why this is important. Because we live in a, in a time when, when health almost is, is more important than even wealth. Like we grew up with the baby boomers, and the baby boomers were filling houses and getting furniture, and it was about substituting, really sacrificing your health in order to get wealth, right? But we live at a time when health is more important to us than ever before. I want to work from home, and I want to have work-life balance, and I want to be healthy, and I want to go to therapy. And these are all great things, right? But just like wealth, just like health, anything that we're trying to get 
instead of God, without God, or before God becomes an idol and it actually ruins the thing that we're trying to get. So here's what, what we're saying. Just like you can't swim without water, just like you can't eat without food, the same way you can't breathe without oxygen, you can't burn something without fire, you can't get healed without Jesus. There is no physical or spiritual or emotional or, 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 or political or, or marital or eternal or theological. There is no healing outside of Jesus because Jesus doesn't just give healing. He is healing. He is the healing. He is the salvation. And people, you and me, are trying to desperately, constantly, trying to go figure out how to solve our problems and get what we want and do what we think we should do without Jesus. But that is all going to be confounded and ruined because trying to swim without water is impossible and trying to be healed without Jesus is foolish. We cannot be healed without Jesus because Jesus is healing. And so the three different little signposts that we'll use throughout this, from the passage and back home into, into our day-to-day life, is that the reason why we're sick is because of sin. Like physically sick because of the fallen world, but also spiritually, emotionally sick. It's not You and me are not flustered in anxiety and anger all the time because Enneagrams can't get along. We're not mad at each other because we fail to communicate. Like that's some of it is that we're just different. But the real reason why it hurts to live down here in the skin is because we sin. You sin against me. I sin against you. You sin against each other. Like that's the reason. Hurt. Hurt is a good thing because it tells you to take your hand off the stove. And pain is part of this because it's teaching you that this is not about accidental Enneagram numbers. It's about sin. It's about you and me want to take things into our own hands, redefine good and evil like, it's our, like we're God, and then pretend like what we just did is not what it is, which is a sin. And, and, that's a, is, and in running away from that, we actually are sabotaging our own, we're our own worst enemy because actually it's when we actually name that thing and understand it as sin, we actually know what to do with it. And Jesus is going to say the only healing does not come from a nice meditation and time heals wounds and just like, you know, throw something into a fire. Healing only comes from one place, which is the place that he tells the paralytic. It comes at the cross. It's by his stripes that we're healed. It's coming before the God of the universe who has authority to define what's right and wrong and how to fix it. And not just because he feels good, because he paid for it. He declares into that room and this one that the truth about God is he uses authority for forgiveness, not judgment. That any man and any woman both in terms of salvation, but also ongoing daily healing that comes to the cross with a sin will not see judgment, but will see atonement. That's a fact. That's the kind of fact that you need to preach to ourselves when it's hard, preach to our neighbor when they don't believe it, preach to ourselves when we're sick and lonely and tired. We need to come to the cross of Calvary and say, my only healing is in this forgiveness, and that forgiveness is a fact, not a feeling. Not how I woke up this morning. And lastly, how to walk that out with the Spirit. So this is, uh, this is what we'll walk through in terms of the third patient, which is the tax collector that is not different in terms of his condition from the leper and the, and the paralytic. Verse 13 says this, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. So I want to take note of the context here before we move into the dialogue and the plot of this little narrative here. But it's very important that it says again like that he's, Jesus is always at the beach. Anybody love the beach here? Isn't that a great place? You love the beach. Some things become, things are complicated in the work, in the cubicle, and they get clear at the beach. You ever notice that? You just walk out on the beach. I mean, the biblical reference of, of water is just inimitable. Is that even a word? Noah is about water, right? And Joshua is about water. And Moses is about water. And your baptism was about water. Water is a sign of judgment. Water is a sign of healing. Water is a, ty- a sign of, 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 of salvation. Okay? But maybe sometimes theologically we can get too heady about the thing, and just remember the thing about water, when you go to the beach, things that were complicated become clear. How many of you guys have made very important decisions about your life at the beach that you wouldn't have been able to make if you were at home? How many of you guys have gotten to the beach and gotten clarity about your professional calling to the point where you didn't know what you were going to do, and somehow walking on the beach, you do know what to do? I think whether it's theological or experiential, I think that the beach is an important place, and Jesus tends to call fishermen at the beach. You notice where a lot of people are called at this place between order and chaos, not to go back into the sand, but out onto the ways with Jesus. He calls people in places like that, hey man, follow me, even when you don't know the answer, even though you don't know what's ahead, even when it's scary, okay? 
And so he preaches out to this crowd, and I used to love in youth group, they used to say, sometimes kids would come up to me and they say, Pastor Oliver, I just want to say thank you right now for the speech that you gave. And I don't have the heart to correct them. It's like, listen, it's not a speech, it's a sermon, you know, it's a, but I'm just like, okay, that's fine, you know, uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's a speech. But I, I think it's important that the language there is, is going to say is that he's, he preaches the crowd, he teaches the crowd, because there's a difference, right, between preaching to a choir and preaching to the crowd, usually on a political level. Uh, uh, p- politicians will preach to crowds to rile them up, right? But Jesus, you'll notice, teaching, teaching is not about riling you up about the ideas that you already have. Teaching about, is about dividing the lines of right and wrong of the ideas that you don't know that you have. And teaching, teaching, right, is not about fans. It is about followers. And Jesus is not here to be a popularity contest. He's not here to be a celebrity. He preaches hard truths because the line of good and evil is not circumferencing this church. It runs through the hearts of every single person in this building. The line of good and evil to repent and believe the good news draws straight through that. And so he's not a political activist rallying people up to things that they want to hear. He's a preacher of the gospel delivering the good news to repent and believe the good news, to walk out onto the waves with him. And so this is why, because he's not making fans, he's making followers. Verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi. He knows his name, even in the middle of a crowd. Son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he says those two words. Those two words, in those two words, the faith to respond to that is what's accredited righteousness, what puts us in Christ, what fills us with the Spirit. There's no such thing as easy believism in the gospel. It's discipleship or nothing. Follow me is salvation. To be close to him is to be saved, and to be far from him is not. Right? To be, fa- to be near to him is to be healed, and to be far from him is to be sick. So follow me, he says, Jesus told him. And, and Levi gets up and just follows him. Gets up and follows him. And so it's really hard for us, you know, as uh, being in 2023 to associate with tax collectors. Like, you got to go through a whole history lesson, and basically Rome is 23% of the globe, and they got the world under its boot. And, uh, and so down there, they have to learn how to decentralize and how to create hierarchy and systems. And so they would hire a little Jewish boy, you know, out there like Matthew here, and he was supposed to collect taxes. And he's an opportunist, you know. Basically what happens is that if I'm a tax collector, I would collect your taxes, but I'm going to ask you for more than the amount that you're supposed to be paying for Rome, and so I'm going to take a little bit of the pocket for myself, and that's exactly how the whole system works, that Rome knows of this, and there's, um, <clears throat> there's an agreement that goes on between the empire you know, and the tax collector. And so it's, it's, it's hard to connect to this, but just think about it this way. There's a difference <clears throat> between fighting the Nazis, running from the Nazis, and becoming a Nazi. Isn't there a difference there, right? Isn't that what's happening with, with, with Matthew? Is that there's a choice... To, I'm sure there was freedom fighters, not very many of them, that were brave enough that were going to stand up to Rome because there's only really one cross that that was ever going to lead you to, right? Including Jesus, that's exactly what he did. But you could fight Rome. You kind of placate and appease Rome, or you could become a Roman. That's kind of what, what Matthew's doing. And so you're just thinking, man, that sounds like so abstract and lawful. It's like, well, here's the question I think that we could ask for ourselves living in a country, in, in America, and living in a modern age, is this question. Is if Matthew is, is basically selling... His heart, his time, his friendships, his political affiliate, he's selling basically everything that he can to maintain a little bit of money that he could possibly have in a desperate and tumultuous political time. You could ask yourself the same question of yourself. Um, What price would you pay of your life, of your friends, of your spiritual life for a piece of the American dream? I used to say, "I I don't want to be rich. I just want to go to Whole Foods and buy whatever I want. I want to be whatever that rich is. What would, it, what would it take? What is the price tag on your soul that you would sell for? What would you give for a six-figure income? What would you give away? What would you trade? What is the opportunity cost that you would lay, lay aside? This is, this is not so far from our home. We are not brave and bold creatures. We are terrified creatures. And we are, we are flinching at every single moment. And, and the leverage of the kingdom of this world, along with the kingdom of enemy, kingdom, kingdom of, of Rome and the kingdom of, of Satan, right, is the question, how can I get this person to sell? What price tag can I put on their soul that they would sell it? I think that's really what's going on with, with, uh, with our friend um, Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. And so this is a little bit of Oliverology here, okay? Oliverology just basically means, you know, Paul would sometimes say, hey, this isn't the Lord, this is just Paul talking, okay? So I'll give you that little disclaimer. But for me... The leper that got healed in the beginning of the story was not just getting healed of his skin condition. He was getting healed of his shame. Because if shame is I don't have the right clothes on and so I'm excluded, then what more is shame than my skin dripping in contagious sores? Like that's the most shameful thing I could think of. And so the man's 
body is getting healed, but his soul, his body's getting healed of leprosy, his whole his soul is getting healed of shame. He's getting invited back in to be included, not just into the kingdom of God, but also the temple system, which he tells him to go to. Now, the second one's a little bit trickier, but you got to go out on a limb with me. I think that the paralytic is being healed in his body, and his in, he's, he's an invalid. He's getting healed in his bones. But he's also getting healed in his pride. And that's a really strange thing to think. Because if somebody's at the bottom of the heap, the last thing that they would struggle with is pride, right? Because we typically assume that Pride comes from privilege. You know, like the little prince, he got everything handed to him, and so he doesn't have to fight for anything. So he thinks he's better than everybody, and so that's how pride gets birth. But actually, if I think about it, the, the, the people that have had the most given to them, if they understand the sense of generosity, they tend to be the least prideful about it because they kind of know it just like comes and goes. But aside from privilege, pain, in my experience, is really where the pride of my life tends to get birth the best. When you get down on that mat, and people walk by you, and people begin to step over you and step on you and hurt you, and you continue to reach out and cry and do the right thing so that you can get help and call out to the right people. And there's that pain that sicks in. There's a point to which you say to yourself, if I ever get this mat up, I'm not going to let anybody else get up that's around me. They can get up on their own. Isn't it really that pain, it's not privilege where, where, where pride is built. It's coming down and saying, if I ever get up off this mat, I'm never going to let anybody else off this mat with any of my help because nobody helped me. I'm not helping anybody else. I think that the first guy got healed of shame and the second guy got healed of pride. But this is all a virology, by, by the way. Now, this last one is what I see in the whole three-legged stool here is I think that Matthew got healed of tax collecting and being a coward and, and, and betraying, right? But I think that, that Matthew, his thing, like shame and pride, is getting healed of fear. Because the thing about our little stories when we talk about faith and facing the giants and killing giants and Goliath, I mean, let's be honest, like, what are we really praying about when we're saying we're praying about fear? Like, what are we really afraid of? Can I be honest with you? Can I share with you some of my fears from the week? We think about this bold thing. I'm gonna, I'm, man, I need faith so I can go conquer mountains and go preach the gospel. You know, let me just tell you what got me hung up this week. I went out to a park with my kids for two hours. I have three boys, and we brought the hammock, and mom's not there, and so we're supposed to play Frisbee. And we get all the way out to the park. This is Legacy Park. It takes about 15 minutes from my house. We get out to the park, and I forgot the Frisbee. That's the whole story. Did, I get, did somebody hold me at gunpoint? No. Did I get a call that I had an inversible disease? No, I'm a 40-year-old pastor, and for 30 minutes, I can't get out of my head how upset I am about the fact that I don't have a Frisbee. Right? This is, these are the little things. Apple keeps changing its chargers. Why are they doing that? Why do you do that, Apple? We have a USB-C now. They don't give you the brick. They just give you the cord, no brick. And I've got one of these things, and you know how Apple does it. I got on Amazon, it's $40. I left my charger at Bridge City Coffee. My day is ruined. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, my charger's gone. I have to pay $40. I'm upset about this. Right? We, we think of, 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 of the fear of man as something that's brave and noble when really the, thing, the kinds of fears that we need healed up are small and petty and somewhat insignificant to everybody else, but they seem deeply meaningful to us. So what is keeping us in our tax booths? What is keeping us in this small little thing if I can pay enough money to Uber out my food and get a six-figure income so I don't have to worry and I can go buy another Apple charger? You realize it doesn't take much for us to sell what Matthew sold. And you realize we're not quite as less sick than the tax collector was or the paralytic, that all of us, all of us are sick. All of us are sinners, but all of us are sick, sick with shame, sick with pride, and sick with fear. And there needs to be not just a fix, but a healing for fear. There needs to be healing. And so that's exactly what happens if you look at it. Jesus says, follow me. And look at the words that the author Mark chooses to use about what he responds to in faith. It says that Levi got up. It didn't just say that he left or he followed Jesus. It says he got up. And that's, ex that's very important language right there because what do you think it, it said exactly, right, about the healing of, of Peter's mother-in-law when she got healed of her fever? Guess what it said? When she got healed, not saved, right? When she got healed, she got up. When the paralytic got healed and he got to walk out with his mat, what did it say about the paralytic? It said he got up. What did it say about Levi when Jesus says to follow him, although he wasn't sick with paralysis and he wasn't needing to be cleansed, it says that when Levi heard, follow me, he got up, which means that Levi, when he followed and trusted Jesus, didn't just get saved, he got healed. He got healed of his fear. And so I got to talk to my Uncle Peter because um, there was a lot of conversation and thoughts and I had 
even feedback from the sermon last week just about what does it mean to be emotionally healed and spiritually healed and what do you think about counseling and therapy and all these types of things. And, um, and the first thing that I'll just say is like I, I took this last week to go call some of the counselors and therapists that I know because I, if anybody should know and you should know as well, there is a strong difference between what the church is doing and what professionals are doing. We're supposed to have a healthy, I believe, understanding that there are people that are trained and professional and, and authorized and doing good work out here to do therapy, and, and the church should know it's lame. There should be a point in all of our lives we say, this is no longer something that handles in a small group. This is something that gets handled by professionals. At the same time, we don't want to abdicate our responsibility that there's a lot of care to be done here in the church, that a lot of times there's such an inundation with therapy, and it's because there isn't care sometimes that goes on in church. But I called my Uncle Peter, and he's about the most biblical experience just I want to tell him about my childhood every time I talk to him on the phone because he just has that whisper. You know what I'm saying? Like he just holds that care and authority. And I just asked him about therapy. I said, tell me something. Tell me what this is like. What does it look like to sit on the, with a chair with somebody that's an unbeliever or a non-believer or, or a believer? And what does it look like for people to go from spiritual sickness to spiritual healing in an actual tangible way? He said, well, the first thing I want to tell you that, about all this is is that any time that there is spiritual sickness and sin, Satan is up to something. He's like, if you're going into a counseling chair and thinking you're just going to go off of books and not trust in the Holy Spirit, you're going into hell with a water pistol. Satan is, in, Satan is intelligent and he's intentional. And the reason why when you're talking to people, they're like a victim one minute and a villain the next and they're bouncing all over the profile of personalities because it's not just them sitting there. They are being tempted and harassed and attacked and sometimes even filled with dark spiritual forces. So if you go into a counseling chair thinking you're just going to solve it with books, and not the Holy Spirit, you signed up for a, a bad day. So the most important thing about the lowercase c counselor is to get you to the capital C counselor. <laughs> and if we're not seeing that as mutually, if you're a, you're a patient or if you're a counselor, if you're not seeing that as a mutual partnership to the lower C counselor to get to the capital C counselor, we're wasting our time and maybe hurting people. And so he said, basically, this is, this is the whole, but knowing your lane, if you're the church, if you're the therapist, if you're the, the patient, if you're, you're, the, you're the person that's giving the care, right, the lower KC counselor, this is basically what I understand my role to do. My understanding is that healing is in Jesus, and so I don't give you ultimatums. I give you invitations. This is what counseling is. He said if a drug dealer comes in, they got 17 problems, okay? But if a drug dealer comes in and they got, a sh they got shot in the leg, you don't have time to handle their family background. you got to handle the pain. So the pain is the place that tells you where the hurt is, and the hurt's telling you where the sin is. And so the number one thing, like not to say that it's the beginning, but there's a sequence to this thing, but it starts, right? It starts with, with, this, with this empathy and this care. So he says, when, when people come in, you invite them to share in the light. Tim Keller has this brilliant quote. He says, to be known and not loved is, to be, is deeply painful. To be loved and not known is deeply shallow. To be known and loved at the same time, you don't even need to, be, you don't need to have a theology degree. You don't need to be a Christian. To be known and loved at the same time is a lot like the love of God. Have you ever had somebody, a lowercase c counselor or a capital C counselor or just a friend, present a safe environment where your sin could be known but the love would not be um, divided by it? That your sin could be out in the open, into the light, but it wouldn't affect the unconditional love of the person across from you. He says that's how the counselor gets working, the lowercase c counselor. But people, people that are hurt, you don't want to find out they're hurt and just leave them there. But the counselor, right, is not the capital C counselor, and we don't offer ultimatums. We do offer invitations. Hey, I know how to handle hurt because pain comes from hurt and hurt comes from sin. And I, we know what to do with sin. We can take it under the authority of Jesus. And what Jesus said to that paralytic when he gets draped down in the middle of that room because of his paralysis and pride tells him the real healing that he needs before he needs the physical healing. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. The only way to handle physical, emotional, and spiritual hurt is through the forgiveness of the cross. If you're a one-handed ping pong player, you know which hand you're hitting with, right? And if you're a Christian, you know how to handle sin. You take that thing to the cross. And that's why you never see a command in all the scriptures to say to forgive someone without understanding you're forgiven first. It is bringing all of our sin, our neighbors and ourselves, underneath the cross, not just to forget it, but to see it forgiven. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a fact. It is an event in history that said that the God of the universe who has authority, the author has authority, decided. He had a choice about what to say about the meaning of sin and what it's going to do and what he's going to do with sin when sin happened. And he made that choice and he decided that choice on Calvary once and for all. And so the atoning sacrifice of Christ is not just a feeling. It is a fact that God is dealing with humans through forgiveness in the cross. It's his decision and we don't get to change that based on our mood and our attitude. And so you don't have to, like this is not an ultimatum, but if you don't want to hurt, 
There is only one place for that healing to happen. It's to bring healing to the cross. But then from there, people have all sorts of victim mentalities, and they like to stay hurt, and people like to stay kind of hurt and go through that cycle and go through healing and hurt, and they don't walk in hell. It's like, you get to say to them, like I remember talking to my Uncle Peter one time, and I was like fussing about my dad, you know, like some of us do at Counselors. And he just simply, very simply said in a very shepherding kind of way, you know, we've already talked about that. Like, that's all it took. Like, there's a difference between hurt and healing, and there's a difference between healing and health. And the Spirit wants to do all of that. He wants to heal. He doesn't want to fix our fear. He wants to heal our fear, fix our pride, heal our pride, fix our shame, heal our shame. And so it says in verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and the disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, is it not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So tables are the way that we draw lines. Eating at somebody's house back then was basically like going on a cruise with them. Like, would you go on a cruise with your arch political nemesis, you know, whoever it is that you think is the problem with this world? That's pretty much what Jesus is doing. He's having dinner with tax collectors. Who knows their spiritual status? And so tables, they are about invitation, but they're also about exclusion. They draw lines. And the, and the people that you eat with and the people you don't eat with is the line of scrimmage to, to what you think belongs at that table. And Jesus did not get rid of lines. He did not end lines. He has lines. He's, he says he, he divides rooms. You know, he divides, there's cilantro and politics and there's Jesus. And Jesus came with a sword to divide rooms. But the line that he chooses to draw is very different from the line we draw from wealth or status or income or health, right? He draws the lines not on human things. He draws it on healing. Basically, in this, in this passage, if you look at it, he draws a line between two groups of people. There's only two groups of people in this world. There's Pharisees and there's followers. There's people who know they're sick and people that don't know they're sick. All are sick, but a follower, the definition of a follower is someone who knows they're sick versus a Pharisee does not know they're sick. And those are the only two lines that you see in this table. But what I love the most about this right, is that Levi goes from basically hunkering down as a coward in his little tax collecting booth, mealing out the little fears and insecurities and idiosyncrasies and covering them with makeup and clothes and shopping and all sorts of, of, of drapings that the American life can offer him. And he just has one confrontation with Jesus and decides to leave it all and follows Jesus actually into more problems than solutions. In the middle of this house, he actually now not only has Jewish enemies. Now he has Roman enemies. He actually follows Jesus into more problems and has less fear. Not only is he, is he evacuated his fear, but he's full of courage. And not only is he full of courage, he's contagious with bravery so that other people who have fear are now finding courage because of the way that he lives. What an incredible, remarkable scene. Levi, who was a tax collector, has turned his bunker into a banquet. How many of you guys have tables in your house and they actually act more like bunkers? They're about who's right and who's wrong and why they're not here and why they're not here. It's just a bunker. We'll save and make the money and in the tax clear, make our lives smaller to see if fear can go away. And how many find out that doesn't work? He finds himself opening up his table. Jesus turns every table. He opens his table into a banquet and sees courage come out. And so I know, you know, the diet people, if you guys are here, you know, people say that food is fuel and just eat food to, you know, to wake up and have enough energy for the day. I don't believe that. I love sauce too much. I, I pick things just because of the sauce. I'm like, what kind of sauce? Is it spicy? I'm getting that. I don't care if it's tofu. I love food. I love the way it tastes. I'm not here to just eat, eat, eat fuel, you know? I, um, uh, uh, I'm getting a little bit too bougie, so I have to watch out for myself, but I did enjoy going to the Korean barbecue with Daniel Kwok the other day. Daniel makes me intimidated. makes me pray, Lord, just impart his muscles onto my body right now, okay? And I also, like, Love eating the food, and we're eating this kimchi that I've never had before, and he's pronouncing it in the right way, and he's talking to the waitress in a way that I would never talk about because he's awesome. Because food's more than fuel. We're exchanging culture and story, and I'm seeing where he comes up with it, and the, and the items on the table are bringing up conversation about his, his family and his, and, and, and his life and his job, right? So food is more than fuel. Is about, food is about family. The table that you have in your in, in your in your thing in your dining room to the Starbucks that you're having coffee at to the Kairos, whatever it is that you like to go eat at, right? It's, it is about the food that you're eating. It is about calories, but it's also about community. It is about family, right? And so, 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 so Levi becomes, goes from fearful to courageous to contagiously courageous at the table as he comes to this thing. And it reminds us that, that fear is just not mitigated. It's not handled. It's healed. It's not fixed. It's, there's a healing for it. And so here's, here's the thing. 
Sunday morning, before church started, I wake up every morning at 6 o'clock, and I was particularly nervous about the little message because it was a little bit long, and I was worried if I was going to finish it or not. And Kyra, who is having her own stress and her own worries, because we're married and because she knows my body language, she doesn't even have to ask me, comes in at 6 o'clock in the morning in the dark and drops a plate of food with the eggs and the strawberries and all the things that you and I would like. And on that thing, like food is fuel, but on that plate is more than just calories, it's courage. Because in that, it's the small little things. It's the small little things that represent the seeds of fear, and it's also the small little things, if you really think about it, that bring out the faith in you and me, that bring out the courage in you and me. My little son Alec, when we got home from the park as I'm stretching out the Frisbee, which was in the car, by the way, good grief, 40-year-old pastor, like, the Frisbee's in the car, just relax, it's not going to matter in five years. He doesn't have to honor me and say thanks, like this was a lame park day, but I love you and this was really fun. But he did, and it filled me with courage. It's not the big things in life that really string us up on fear, and it's not the big things in life that's really fill us with faith. It's the small acts of obedience in the middle of fear that actually represents bravery. Matthew has more problems than he did before he met Jesus. But the difference is he's filled with the Spirit, and he's walking forward in faith. He's stepping forward, step by step. It's not foolishness. It's not ignoring that there's risks. It's deciding to proportion the risk when you baby step, when you look out into the eyes of Jesus in the middle of those waves, in the middle of the faith, decide to keep taking the steps. Faith comes in these small little packages. We had a, uh, uh, one of my, my nieces who um, is just... She has her first baby, and she is having her second baby. Her little friends with just the little care pack, they're not rich. They don't have all the money. But the friends, they got together, and they made the popcorn. And they put little, and it was delicious. They put caramel and chocolate. I'm drooling thinking about it. Caramel and chocolate drizzle. And they put it in a little te- teddy bear package. And that, I didn't even go to the thing. When I, when I came home, I said, what is encouragement other than to fill somebody with courage? I said, I don't know what it is about this popcorn as I was meditating on the scripture, but this bag to me in the middle of covid and politics, and Afghanistan, and all the things that are begging and nipping at your heels for its attention. This represents courage to me. I don't know how to tell you that. I know it was packed with love. I know this place is lonely, and it's not really about the problems that are swirling around you. It is about courage, and sometimes courage looks like popcorn. Sometimes what this world needs and what the kingdom of God is advanced from is like you're really struggling right now, and you don't have any courage, but Jesus says, follow him, and so you bring the meal train. And you don't know what it does. You don't know if they care about it. You don't know, you know that God sees it. You don't know if it affects. But don't underestimate, fear comes to us in small little seeds. We're not afraid of getting killed outside, but we're still, why are we so full of fear in the middle of America? Because fear is not about a circumstance. It is about a mindset. And the smallest little seeds can sink into your heart and fill you with fear, but there's a healing for it. And you know what it is? It's being close to Jesus. Here is the diagnostic. Here is the remedy and the treatment for all of our sickness and all of our sin. Be close to Jesus. To be far from him is to be full of shame. To be near is clean. To be far from him is to be full of pain and vengeance and pride about why somebody else didn't help you, so why you're not going to help somebody else. To be close to him is to be melted in humility. Proximity is healing. To be far from him is to be full of fear, trying to earn money to solve problems that won't solve it. To be close to him is brave. To be close to him is to be full of courage. So this is what I think the invitation is. On hearing that Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but to the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's many stories. We don't associate, because it's hard for us to associate, but these, these guys are us. We are lepers. We are, we are cloaked in shame. You and I have weird things about our personality that are just, they're, they're weird. But it doesn't, it's not like something that I do. It's something that I become. And I, and I don't feel like I fit. And the shame that I have keeps me from him and from his family. We're all filled of pride. We're all filled of, 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 of the same sickness of anxiety. And the solution, the story is, is many stories, but one solution. The solution is the same. Follow me. Stay close. Stay close. So I want to bring up... Um, I'll do the uh, intentional question uh, from last time just to make sure first and second service get the same intentional question. But this is the intentional question that I want to give us about the counselor. 
You may have a friend. You may be in a small group. You may have a good therapist or a bad therapist. But what we all need, really, is the capital C counselor. That's the one that we need for our healing. The spirit always leads to Jesus, and Jesus is our healing. So whether it's a circumstance you're in, whatever you're in, hopefully you have friends and counselors, but you do have a prayer journal because you can grab one of those for free. And at the bottom of it, it doesn't just have room for gratitudes and truth. It also has room for mourning because sometimes the process is not rushing through. It's actually to sit in the pain because this pain is teaching you where the hurt is and the hurt's teaching where the sin is. And so the solution is not throw more Bible at it. You can't get healed by practicing more health. You got to get healed first. So the spirit will come to you evidently a lot because if I need bread every day, Jesus says within the same sentence, I should pray for daily bread. How much more do you think I need daily forgiveness? If I say I'm a Christian, but I don't know what I've sinned of, and I haven't forgiven anybody in, in 10 years, it's basically like saying that I've eaten, but I haven't had a meal in 10 years. And so to come before him at night and to lay your emotions before him, expecting that probably something down here hurt, is probably a healthy thing to do. You have the counselor, and he can show you where the hurt is, and he can show you where the sin is. The Spirit comes to convict us of sin. But secondly, to know what to do with that. The counselor invites us, lowercase and capital C, to the only place that sin can be healed at the cross. It has to be healed with the fact of Calvary. It has to be healed with something more, less fluctuating than my feelings. I have to continually, daily forgive people by bringing it to the cross. The only way I can forgive others is to recognize my need for forgiveness. To see compassion, to be sad for someone rather than mad at them, is to come to the cross and recognize his authorization is greater. But then the last question. Like it comes a point when sometimes people just like their pain because it, it gives them permission to not walk in healing and not walk in health. And it feels good to have some kind of empathetic expression of like people, it's almost cool to, you ever notice it's like cool to be hurt? That's an identity. I don't know, how are you hurt? Let's talk about it. Like that becomes an identity. Jesus did not call us to live hurt. He's called us to live healed. So the spirit has come to identify the hurt, but not stay there, to invite us to healing. And from that healing, he's invited us to health, to walk. I mean, not as superheroes, but as sons and daughters, as brave sons and daughters walking. It's not that we have the answers. We keep taking steps with Jesus. We keep walking out with Jesus into our healing because Jesus doesn't give healing. He is the healing himself. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.